Welcome to the New York Mandate podcast, where we take a look at the costs and consequences of New York's COVID-19 vaccine mandates. I'm Amy, and in this series, I'll be talking with people who have been directly affected by mandates about their perspectives and experiences. I am here today with Chris O'Day, who for 17 years, is that right, was a paramedic with the DNY? Yeah, Amy. That's that's quite a while. That's um, what is what is a typical career for a, a paramedic? Uh, usually, uh, it's twenty five years, and we get to retire with a pension. Right. So that's our, that's common. Usually, people stay twenty five. Some people stay thirty years, but lately, obviously, it's, it hasn't been getting to that level anymore, like it used to in the past. Right. Right. So you were um, not. It wasn't quite a full career, but a, a big chunk of one. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the majority of my adult life was, <laughs> yeah. was spent uh, the, uh, working for the FDNY as an EMT and a paramedic. Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you come to do that? Um, it's, you know, ever since I was a kid, I just always had an affinity for, I guess, helping people, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, sciences. Like I, I just love all that stuff, the human body, uh, the amazingness of the human body. It was always an interest to me. And when I was younger, uh, about 18 or so, I had moved out and was on my own. And I was originally going to Brooklyn college to be for pre-med. Um, that was my goal, but, uh, I just couldn't, I just didn't have it in me to go to school, work, and support myself. And I really just didn't have, you know, as a young kid, I just didn't have the wherewithal to be able to withstand that level of pressure. So, you know, I took another job and I worked on Wall Street as a paralegal for a little bit. And I just kept getting called back to uh, just wanting to help people, wanting to do something. So I came across an EMT course and I said, okay, I said, I got to do this, you know, so I did. And that's how I got back into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And when, when, around when was that? Uh, This was in, I started with the fire department in 2005, but I became an EMT in 2004. And then how does it work? You, so you're an EMT and then um, at some point you advanced to being a paramedic. How, How does that path work? Uh, Yes, Amy, that's correct. So first you're an EMT, which is an emergency medical technician. Uh, So you are responsible for for basic uh, life support, Um, CPR, ventilations, uh, especially trauma, uh, trauma care, wound care, stuff like that. So once I was an EMT, I was working in the streets for about three years with the fire department. And I was ready to go to the next level. You know, I felt like I said, okay, I, I think I'm ready to move on um, to take on uh, some more responsibilities. So I took the um, paramedic uh, upgrade class through the fire department, which is about a nine month program. And uh, I became a paramedic and it was, it's a def- definitely uh, a different world. There's a lot more responsibility, um, no doubt, because as an EMT, you can call for backup and medics could come, but as a medic, um, you're it, you're it. Um, there's really no one else to call for uh, medical assistance. You're the, you're the top. So you moved up to being a paramedic. Yes. And, um, 
tell me, tell me how it was during the pandemic. What, what area of the city were you working in? Um, I was working in Staten Island at the time. So I covered, I guess, uh, what would be considered the North shore of Staten Island by the Verrazano bridge, uh, park Hill area, um, like new Dorp area, Highland Boulevard, stuff like that. So, yeah. So during, I mean, during the pandemic, it was, you know, initially, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know what was going on. Um, so there was, I mean, you could cut the tension in the air with a knife. It was just very heavy. You know, you, you come in and, you know, every day, you know, you, we would go to the, our Lieutenant's office, um, the crew before us. And, and I worked, uh, the, the overnight shift, uh, with my partner, Luda and, you know, the day tour would come back. We'd get our radios from them. We'd get our drugs from them. And we do a quick like debrief of the day. And it was just like, I mean, everyone's face was just, <laughs> you know, I try to like, you, you recall it. And I don't even know if there's words to even explain it. You know, people were terrified. Um, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was going to happen to us. We didn't know what was going to happen to each other. We didn't know what was going to happen with our families, you know, cause we were still going home. Some people were sleeping in hotels cause they were afraid to go home. You know, they had like young babies at home and stuff. So it was, it was very intense. You know, there's a lot of anxiety. Just, it's just, everyone was, it was just eerily quiet, but that undercurrent was just whew, palpable. And even just recalling it now, like I could just feel it like physically in my body, like uh, replay it. So excuse me if I'm like a little, like a little antsy, I have to like, let that energy kind of go. Um, so, yeah, so we, you know, there was no, <laughs> Not that there wasn't a choice. Uh, we didn't really have a choice, but we did, I guess. We could always just not, not show up to work, but we showed up every single day. You know, we showed up every day. We stayed 16 hours, 18 hours plus if needed um, to cover people who were out sick or to cover people who were injured and couldn't come in or whatever the case. Um, so we were just out there. We're out there doing it, um, dealing with, you know, sick people every day, going into people's homes, not knowing what to expect. Um, so it was a very um, anxious, nervous time. You know, I remember coming home once and, you know, I would like wrap up my uniforms and like bring them upstairs to wash and stuff and not put them anywhere and stuff and not bring my shoes in the house, like just, and then come home really quick and take a shower, wash my hair, just... And I remember coming home to my husband. He was working from home at the time. And uh, I went to go give him a hug. And he kind of was like, <laughs> like a little, you know, kind of like backed away. And I was like, oh, my God, like, this is real. You know, like, this is serious. And I was like, oh, my God, baby, are you serious? Like, and he's like, I'm sorry. It was almost like it's just wild. You know, like the whole thing was just it was just wild and crazy. Um, but we did it. You know, we did it. Um we got it. We got through it. We got through it with each other. Um, and with the help of our communities, like our communities really would send us food to the stations and stuff. And they really showed appreciation for what we were doing out there. And, um, in turn, we, you know, we showed our just love for our communities really. And we're there, we were there for whatever was needed. And I think everyone knew that and appreciated that. So that felt really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, like even for those of us who are 
in New York, you know, in a, in a, uh, uh, a city like that, right. Where, where there, you know, like New York was, uh, you know, an epicenter of, um, of the pandemic. And uh, even for those of us who were in places like that, we didn't see, you know, we were staying home or we were just like going to work and coming back and we didn't see what you saw. Maybe people yeah. heard a lot of sirens or they didn't, you know, it was right. a whole different experience. Um, everybody was staying in while yeah. you were going out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think it's, it, there's something to be said when you're, when you enter another person's home, you know, um, and people, people were very scared, you know, their family members were sick and they were just terrified. Um, they couldn't go to the hospitals with them. They couldn't support them, uh, which was just terrible. And, you know, we would sit, we would sit there and, and we would, people would be crying, you know, it would just be absolutely just heartbreaking. And I would, I remember I would tell people, I'm like, I would hold their hands and I would say, this is not a death sentence. Like keep the faith. You're going to be okay. You know, we're going to get through this. We're going to have, and I would tell the family, like, just call the hospital, just call them, update them. We, you could talk to your family member if needed, you know, but the fear was just, I mean, it was just so sad to see these people um, have to leave their family and not know if they were going to see them again, you know? And, and at the time, you know, people, you know, people were, you know, really having trouble breathing. This was like the first um, initial wave where it was very intense. You know, the illness was very intense and people were very, very, very scared of what was going to happen to their family members. And, you know, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember just sitting with them and, and just saying, I uh, just stay off that vent as long as you can fight, fight, fight every day to fight to stay away from that vent because there was just a part of me, you know, I'm just, you know, who am I? I'm a paramedic. I, you know, I've been doing this for a while, but you know, I know that being intubated and being placed on a ventilator is not a benign intervention. It is an extremely invasive procedure. And oftentimes trying to wean people off of ventilators is extremely difficult and it just causes so many problems as, as you can imagine, you know, you have a, a tube going from the outside environment directly down your throat, past your vocal cord, cords into your trachea, direct access to your bronchial tubes, your lungs. So you have any bacteria virus from the outside now have it pretty much a super highway uh, bypassing, you know, your, um, any type of immune response that you might get in your throat to stop any, any of that from coming. It's literally like a super highway. And, you know, if you already have difficulty breathing or lung issues or an infection, you know, it just compounds that um, 10, 20 times over. So, you know, I would just tell people like fight, fight, walk, get up, walk, you know, just do the breathing exercises, use your incentive spirometer and use it and use it and use it and, and, and just try your hardest to stay off that vent. And, you know, that was unfortunately the best and the only advice I could give at that point, 
um, to people who were super scared, but I'm hoping, I don't really know what the outcome was for many of my patients, but I hope they took that advice. <laughs> this was, this was like spring 2020. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. There was such a huge focus on ventilators then, I, you know, um, Cuomo was always, um, in his, in, in his, uh, press conferences, his talks that he would do every day. He was the, always talking about getting more ventilators, getting people on ventilators. Did you, were you even seeing any of that or were you too busy working? Well, you know, um, (laughs) when we would, so when we would bring people to the hospital, you know, um, a lot of my patients were having shortness of breath. So we would put them on oxygen, uh, you know, with a nasal cannula, either um, through the nose, if they couldn't tolerate a mask. And they were breathing on their own. And usually with supplemental oxygen, they did feel so much better. There was almost immediate improvement um, just in their comfort level and their breathing level. Um, But we would go into some of the hospitals and we would be stopped at the door and be like, why are they on oxygen? And why are they not like intubated or... And I'm just like, cause we can, you know, as a paramedic, we can intubate in the field. And I said, well, they can, they're breathing and talking on their own, you know? So I'm not going to intubate someone who's awake and talking. Why would, why would I do that? You know, who's not in severe respiratory distress, you know, when you're intubating someone, it's because they cannot maintain uh, their breathing capacity. They're unable to breathe on their own or they're going into respiratory failure or respiratory arrest. So to intubate someone, you know, you have to meet certain criteria to get to that level. And not to mention the fact that if someone's somewhat conscious and needs to be intubated, we have to sedate them first. So there's, there's a big process in this, you know, and, and you have to make sure you get that too. You know, you're on somebody's floor in their house, you know, you, you on your belly, like, we don't have, you know, we're not in an op- in a room with lights and 20 people and uh, fancy equipment, you know, so you, you, it's a serious deal and you have to make sure that you secure that airway if you're going to intubate someone. So I don't go around intubating people, you know, haphazardly just for no reason, you know, they really, um, there has to be a real reason for that. So what I've noticed at the time was that people were given the option of either being ventilated or not being placed on oxygen at all. So these people were going in already terrified, you know, already short of breath. And the hospitals were not even, especially in the beginning, especially, they they weren't even being placed on oxygen. It was either, if you want oxygen, you have to get intubated. And it was just, I, I remember turning to my partner and saying, this is what is killing people. This is what's going to kill the majority of people is this uh, hospital protocol, which was absolutely horrible. And even patients who didn't have COVID, uh, we had, you know, a drug overdose. Um, This poor kid didn't, we didn't know exactly what he overdosed on um, because even with our interventions, he wasn't coming around. So we were ventilating him. uh, So he wasn't, we didn't intubate him, but we were ventilating him. And we came into the hospital and the doctor was just, I remember flipping out that we were even ventilating him. And I said, hang on a second. First of all, I'm not, he's 22 years old. I'm not just going to not ventilate 
a patient because of a fear of COVID, right? Like we don't just allow people to die because he may possibly could maybe sort of kind of have COVID on top of this already emergency episode, medical episode that he's having, like I'm going to ventilate him. <laughs> so we were, we were dealing with a lot of that and it was really eye-opening of what was kind of going on and uh, scary. It was really scary because you don't know what was happening. Once you drop that patient off, like you just didn't know if were they getting treated correctly or were they getting treated out of fear and not getting treated rather, you know, it was just, it was just pretty wild. It was pretty wild. I lost a lot of, um, I don't know if respect is the right word, but a lot of faith <laughs> in uh, emergency medicine at that point. How many different hospitals were you dealing with? On Staten Island, I was dealing mainly with two, but we do have three there. But because of at the time, the protocols were um, you had to take the person to the nearest hospital. There was no kind of choice of going a little bit out of your area. So uh, I was dealing main, mainly with two hospitals on Staten Island, on the South Shore of Staten Island. And, and they were following exactly the same protocol. Everyone was doing the same thing in every hospital. Um, some hospitals were more, I guess, um, what's the word? What's the best word I could use? I don't want to say like aggressive with it. Um, I think it really came down to the individual, to the doctors or the attendings on the night. You know, some people were, you know, some doctors like, you know, you have your doctors who you're like, okay, like I trust you. Like if, I trust you more than, you know, the doctor, I mean, right. A doctor is a doctor, just like a person, like any of us, um, how someone practices can be not exactly in alignment with their patients, you know, or, you know, everyone has their own way of, of practicing medicine. Um, and I kind of appreciate those who kind of, um, go a little bit outside and see the big picture instead of just kind of, focusing in on one thing and not, you know, there's, there's, it's just, there's no black and white, you know, there's always gray area. There's no such thing as, oh, if this is this, then that, you know, it's just, there's so many variables. There's so many things. Everybody's different. So I appreciated the doctors who saw that mm -hmm. and kind of went around it, but I know that their hands were tied as well with policy and it was just, it was just wild. And I can't help but feel in like the pit of my stomach, you know, in my, in my soul that so many people lost their lives because of those protocols, those hospital protocols that were just really detrimental to health in general and really gave the patient no fighting chance whatsoever. Is that something that you had, um, like, was it a huge leap? Had you felt that before that sometimes the way patients were treated was not the way that you would have thought would be best or, you know, is it, was, it, was there kind of like a gradual <laughs> yeah. um, difference in the way people are treated in hospitals that you've seen over time? Or was there something just really different happening here with, with COVID? You know, I guess just to reiterate my point from before, I really think it's really the individual. Like there are some really great doctors out there and nurses and techs and all that stuff and who really have a passion for people, 
you know, and really do their best to help people. And there are some people who just follow, you know, what they're told and don't really try to look at the person in front of them. And I think at this point it became like glaringly, you know, just glaringly obvious to, to just say, we're supposed to be here for people, helping people. And like, what's the priority? You know, really question like, are people the priority anymore? You know, are people's health the priority? Because you get someone coming in, but that one person has a family at home who loves them and cares about them. Like, they're not just, they're not just a number. They're not just some person. Yeah, you know, like they're, they're a human being. (laughs) And I just felt like that was just really just washed away. And it was so, it was just so blatantly and glaringly obvious that it was really, it was really quite sickening that, that hospitals where people go for help, right? Where people go, like people seek your help when they've tried their best and can't do any more. And they're coming to you scared, right? Fearful, nervous, just worried. You know, this is your life. You know, you're going to ask someone for help, like, please help me get better. I'm scared. And I just felt like it was just sedate him, intubate him and put him on a vent. And, and then they, and then, and then they die. It was just, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are people who came off the vent, um, thank God, but you have to be a very strong, healthy, you know, physically strong body to be able to overcome multiple infections, right? So even if you had COVID, now you might have a secondary bacterial infection in your lung, or now you might have a urinary tract infection from a urinary tube because you're sedated in a coma on a vent and you can't urinate. So they have to put a tube and then you have IVs that where there are more now super highways for germs to get in and you become septic and your body is too weak to fight off all this and you're not even moving, right? The human body has to move. You know, that's, we're not meant to just lie flat, especially with lung problems. You know, that's, it's just terrible, (laughs) you know, and I, and I, and I just say this based on my experience um, from what I saw with my own eyes and it was just, It was just not what I was hoping to see in the case of this, you know, pandemic situation. I thought that I didn't think that humans were just really just so just, I mean, I always, I always knew, you know, like I always knew health care was not really health care for people. I, I, you know, it never really, gets to the root of the problem. We always just throw medicine at symptoms and never really address the root cause of things, which is, you know, the main issue of what's causing all the symptoms. So I never really had, you know, I guess throughout my years, I kind of started to lose faith in, in the healthcare system. And and then seeing through this, I was just, I was just really just blown away by um, what the priorities were. It just didn't seem like the priorities were for people. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering, like, is this, is what you're describing a result of 
you know, the way that hospitals are run, the way that hospital administration has developed over time, or is it something that, that that's new that came in from, you know, a government agency or a government, uh, you know, mm-hmm. dictate that said to all the hospitals, okay, now you have to do this. Like, is this, is it a symptom? Is it a, a progression of something that was already happening in hospital administration or is it like an external <laughs> force yeah. came in? I, I definitely think there is a combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of, I mean, I, I can't really speak too much about administration because I don't really know much, but um, there's certainly a disconnect, right, from what's happening in on like an administrative level and what's happening, you know, at the ground level. Right. You know, um, most most people at the ground level see things in a completely different way than people, you know, up in a building, um, who haven't, who hasn't seen a patient in probably 10, 15 years, who hasn't done patient care, you know, uh, the priorities shift from treating a human being to maybe numbers and money and things like that. So, you know, and I think the priority shifted, especially with government aid that, you know, if we could get money by doing this and following these protocols, then, it'll help us out. And I just think that there was this huge disconnect. And I think we could see that not only in hospitals, but pretty much everywhere else that we look is now after the fact, right. And when you look back, you can say, Oh my gosh, you know? Um, and that's what I mean. I guess when I say like, where's the priority, like are humans, the priority, or is there another more, you know, lucrative priority that takes precedence. So, and you know, there comes a time when, you know, you have somebody has to say, um, this isn't right. You know, like who's the, who's the person who says, Hey, this isn't working down here. You know, like, cause us at the ground level, we could see it's not, it's not working. So who's saying it's not working. Who are they telling and who's not listening or who's listening or hearing, but making the decision not to change anything, you know? And and what was and what is the cost of that? Right. Like we say cost. Do we talk financial cost? Well, financial cost is just one cost. Right. Like there are many other costs like human life, <laughs> human well-being, you know, uh, providing care that is relevant to the person, you know, not taking orders from someone who has never done patient care or hasn't been in patient care in decades. You know, where at what point are you, at what point does a line get drawn and say, okay, this has to stop at some level and who gets to make that decision and who doesn't get to make that decision, you know? What's your, if you're a paramedic for the, uh, for FDNY, what's your chain of command? Who's your boss? If you see things on the ground, who do you talk to? I talk to my lieutenant. Well, my lieutenants usually work. We work very closely in EMS with our lieutenants. Uh, they usually come on jobs with us all the time. And so they see what we see. And if we're, if there's a problem, you know, we, we tell them we have very, I mean, at least with my lieutenants, I've always had very close relationships with them. And so I would tell my lieutenant, we tell, we talk to each other as well. Uh, we also have, um, we also have uh, an, an ALS coordinator who, if there's issues like with equipment or something, we go, 
I would go to her and say, Hey, listen, this piece of equipment is not doing that great. Or, um, you know, we, we even have our medical directors who look over each uh, division of EMS and, you know, I could always call up my medical director and say, all right, you know, Hey, you know, we've been doing this, but I don't know, this isn't working. Um, what do you think we should do? Is this something, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of dialogue. Um, we do have a lot of dialogue have, getting policy changed. You know, that's, that's a whole nother level. That's a whole nother level. Um, you know, just like administration and hospitals, the fire department has their administrations too. You know, we have people sitting in a building and who haven't been around patients or people and haven't touched a person in a, in a patient care type of way in decades, you know, making decisions um, for us on the street. So Do we always try to like make our voices heard, but whether they're, whether they're heard or he, heated, I guess are two very different things. Do you, do you, um, do you think they are even heard though? Do you think that when you give feedback to your boss, do you think that gets back to like hospital administrators and goes up the chain to people who are actually making policy and making decisions? Do you ever I don't think so. No, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so because, you know, if it doesn't fit into what they're what they're trying to do, whether it be save money on equipment or try this new protocol because, you know, some doctor wants to like, you know, write a paper about it and we're like the experiment, you know what I mean? Um, you know, they just say, all right, this is what we got to do. And here it is. And you're just like sitting here like, oh, okay. You know, like, is, like who's making these decisions? But apparently these people make decisions. They don't really listen to us on the street, even though, <laughs> I mean, it, it just boggles my mind. And that's what leads me to, to just feel like that the humanity level and the real true care, the real true patient care is somewhat meaningless. You know, it's just, it's just sort of like what's done, but I don't know if it's really, really, truly always the, uh, the priority. Mm -hmm. I question that. You know, I do. I question that. And I'm not saying that everyone thinks that way. Um, and nor that I'm saying that some of the administration w wants it to change and they just can't get it changed. You know, it's just there's, you know, just like anything you running into into all this red tape. And I know I, I just must people must feel like their hands are tied in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Were you, was it mainly um, during the height of the pandemic, was it mainly respiratory issues that you were getting called for, for people with? Yes, I would say respiratory issues, certainly. A lot of people were having shortness of breath. Um, sometimes, you, were, you know, we were also having like cardiac arrests. People would die at home as well. Um, but those were like the main those are the main calls. Um, people were also very scared to go to the hospital. So most of the time there weren't many other calls. People were just terrified to go to the hospital for anything. You know, they were just like, I don't want to go at all. You know, so there really wasn't many other calls. Like usually we'll have chest pain calls or, you know, just people with chronic medical conditions and have issues with their, you know, just having their chronic medical issues. And 
those calls like really kind of just like went way down. I think people as a general were just terrified. They just did not want to go to the hospital no matter what. So that meant that all of the calls that you were getting were really urgent. Yes. Because <laughs> the, the less urgent stuff people just weren't calling you for. Yes. It was yeah. like crisis mode all the time for you. Crisis mode all the time. And I remember even coming home for like my past days, like our days off, like we'd have two days off or three days off. And it would just be like, oh my God, you know, it was just, I would literally want to like just hold myself up in the house and not like leave the house. Like I was just like, I needed to almost like regain my energy. And then by like the second day, you're, I'm already dreading going back. You know, so it's like, it was like, this is constant, like dread, <laughs> like really, it was just like, oh my God. All right. Let me just, so I'd sit home and I would like hang out with the dogs and just hang out with my husband and we'd try to do stuff or, you know, like repaint the garage, like just do something mindless and to keep me busy just so that I wasn't like just dreading the next day going in. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was a lot of, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely like a mentally challenging moment, like emotionally challenging for sure. Right. For sure. What about, um, you know, things kind of, uh, ebbed and flowed. <laughs> there was the second wave and then, you know, we've had these successive waves. How did, how did things change, uh, from one wave to the next and, and how did that, um, how did the way that you saw this being presented publicly in the media, you know, public discussion, um, how did that correspond to what you were seeing on the ground as things progressed? Yeah. So yeah, there were so many. So after the first, I would say, I would say by May, 2020, you know, when you're living in a state in that sort of state of like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. Eventually you eat, you have to face, you, you, you come to a point where you're like, okay, all right. Um, so far I'm still alive, right? I'm standing, I'm working. I've been around a ton of sick people and only sick people. I said, all right. Okay. All right. So I started to like really, um, question things, how things were being done then and saying, all right, like, is this, what's really going on here? You know? And I really started to take a look back and then, and then we had the lull, right. And then like the summertime we had the lull and then it kind of came back up again in the fall. And then we were seeing people who were sick, but not as sick, you know, and then people started calling again and going back to the hospital. So there was a, like a return of this sense of like, you, you gotta live life. You know, you can't just, it's not possible to live in this state of like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Oh my God. Oh my God. Like your, your body eventually at one point is like, listen, I'm done here. Like we're, I'm done living in like this. Like we just got to accept it and deal with it and continue to go out there and do your job. Like that's what you're here for. This is what you signed up to do, right. To help you. And this is what you're doing. So I think there was just this one level of like, listen, we're living it. So it's here. It's not going anywhere. It is what it is. But certainly like the, the symptoms of what and the P and the, the people that we were seeing were much less severe 
much, much less severe. I mean, it was just, it was just, yeah, it was, it was really night and day. It was really night and day. And then that kind of, you know, you kind of say, okay, well, this makes sense, right? Like, just like any kind of illness or virus, right? It kind of like the more that people, it goes through people, the less severe it gets. And I think all of us, especially in EMS, I mean, we were, I mean, this is what, this is, we were, we were the ones, we were the ones, you know? And it just got to a point where like, okay, you know, this is something that we can handle. We've seen many worse things, you know, we've seen many worse things. We've seen many worse illnesses, you know, we've seen um, just chronic illnesses that are that could have worse outcomes as well. So, you know, then you, you hear what's going on and what's being projected to the public and, you know, what people are telling me, you know, here at home, if I would walk the dogs and be like, Oh my God. And I'm just, and I would just tell people like, if I were you just, I would just shut the television off for a little bit because it's not, it's not as bad as it's, as it sounds. And I'm telling you this from a person who's on, the ground level. Now, I know that there are people in my position who would say differently, but from what I've seen and just from just in general, just life in general, you know, when there's something to be said, when someone is constantly trying to scare you and make you very fearful, um, I feel like there's like a certain level of untrustworthiness to that. When, when there's a time to be scared, you're scared is one thing, but to constantly and chronically be subjected to this like fear over and over and over again, that's, that's very degenerative to a human being, like to your psyche, to your health. Right. And then you talk about your physical health, which is very much in connection to your emotional health. And you could see how it, it, it really can harm a person and make, and make a person weaker and weaken their immune system by having these chronic stressful thoughts, you know, like we're not meant to live, even though modern society states, otherwise, we're not meant to live in a chronic sympathetic fight or flight response. You know, that is not beneficial to our health and well-being in any way, shape or form, you know, and of course, when there's a sense, you know, when there's a need to be frightened, there's a need to be frightened, but when you're chronically and constantly scaring people to a point where, you know, some people will probably never recover from that, like mentally, emotionally recover from that type of fearfulness for the rest of their lives. You know, that, that's harm. That was harming people in a, in a whole other way that, you know, that, that then reinforced my whole thought is like, you know, is anyone caring about people here? <laughs> I mean, I understand this is, this is scary. You know, COVID is scary. Yes. It's killing people. Yes. The hospital protocols are killing people. Yes. But you know, there are also other things that could kill people. You know, there are other things that there are other risk factors, you know, and then for all this fear for, you know, a 99.9% survivability rate, you know, you have to kind of question, you sit back and you say, hang on a minute, you know, like what is happening here? What is going on? Like something's going on and it just doesn't feel right. And it just doesn't sound right. And it just, it feels like very abusive, you know, it feels very just dark. I guess that's the best way I can put it. I hope I answered your question, Amy. I don't know if I go off on tangents. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, it was this, this was a subject of um, conversation, debate between different paramedics over time. Is it something that people had different (laughs) view on? (laughs) You know, it's funny because I would tell people, I'm like, you know, you would go to the supermarket and everybody's like masked up six feet apart. I'm like, come into an EMS station. You would never even know. <laughs> you would never know. You know, once I would say like literally once May, June came along, like I think all of us were kind of like, okay, we're done here. You know, we're, we're done with this. Um, we're hugging each other. We're walking around without masks. We're eating together. We're, you know, getting together at each other's houses. I, I, you know, we were just like, okay, you know, we're whatever will be is going to be. And we're certainly not going to like stop being who we are. And, and literally I would, I would tell people like even the following year, you know, when people are still not back to work yet, a lot of people and stuff. And I'm like, come to my station. You really wouldn't, you would think it's not, it's 2019. Like it's just, everyone's going about their life and doing their thing. Um, And I know I'm not just speaking for EMS. I know I'm speaking across the board, you know, for most of us and most agencies who were, who are at work, you know, during this whole time and went through it, you know, you kind of come out on the other side. The thing about going through a fearful time, you know, you come out the other side and with a little bit more confidence and a little bit more self-assuredness and a little bit more discretion, you know, where you could say, okay, this is where I need to be worried. This is where I don't need to be worried. This mm. is where, you know, and this is including one of our, you know, and some of our members did get sick, you know, being out here and, and did get sick. We, we thought one of our really good friends wasn't going to make it out of the hospital. And and that was, you know, amidst everything else that was really hard too. But even he, to this day, thank God that he made it out and he's doing great. But, you know, even he was, even he was like, yes, you know, he, he didn't, he wasn't on a ventilator. <laughs> and I was like, please, Frank, don't get on the ventilator. Um, but yeah, I think it just, I think it just came to a point where we were just, you know, you, you just have this a little bit more discernment about what you need to worry about. And it came to a point where COVID was no longer something we really had to worry about anymore. Mm-hmm. So what, um, ballpark how many people you worked with uh caught covid uh, like in the beginning in the beginning there was a few who caught it but they were very sick um and they were out for a long time so they were you know they got sick on the job and then they were out for months because they were they were really sick the recovery from covid was very rough for them um you know, they had like some GI issues and stuff. And then like, then there was like the second wave after like, so then it's like fall 2020, uh, where then you had some people getting sick, but it wasn't, you know, was nowhere near as bad. And then I think at this point, (laughs) every single person, every single one of us has had COVID every single one of us. Um, some people multiple times, you know, but if you get, you know, you get a test and you have to stay home for 10 days and then they shorten that to five days. And then it was like, okay, well, if you test positive once, don't test for a while because if you come up positive, you know what I mean? So there were all these other maneuvers being done <laughs> to try to like, okay, we'll just not test you for a little bit longer because we need you to work. So <laughs> like, oh, do you still have symptoms? Oh, um, all right. Well, as soon as you don't have symptoms, come back, you know, 
right. so you know things also started changing right so the requirements i use my little air quotes started to change you know as things so i feel like you know things really it just started to downgrade which is what was expected right you know i don't think covid is going to you know, magically disappear and snap and never see it again, you know, it's going to be around. But the the point is, is that it's certainly not as severe as it was. I mean, people are still getting sick, but not as much, right? And of course, those people who have chronic health problems or have immune system disorders and things like that, of course, they're more susceptible. They're more susceptible to everything, you know, they're more, more very a sensitive population. And of course, they need to take precautions as necessary that they feel they need to take. But life in general is, you know, life is always moving in a forward motion. You know, it's, it stops for no one, regardless of what's going on. So you caught it yourself. Yes. Yep. How did that go? (laughs) It was, you know, I felt crappy, you know, I felt crappy. Um, I was still managing my husband and I, we had it at the same time. So you know, it was just us. So we're like, okay, you know, somebody's got to walk the dogs, right? Someone, you know, so we would get out. And I think that really helped us too. We try to stay moving. I mean, like doing daily exercise, like more vigorous exercise was not happening, but going for a walk with the dogs, getting some fresh air was certainly helpful. You know, we had to eat, so we had to cook something, you know, whoever felt the best (laughs) did the cooking, you know, (laughs) like a light meal, whatever we could, whatever we could do. But, um, you know, we slept a lot and, you know, I, I'm, I take health care for myself very seriously. So I, I was doing a lot of like breathing and breath work exercises, um, because I did have a cough, (laughs) Um, so I was making sure that I did a lot of breath work and move that, you know, expand my lungs to the fluest, uh, fullest and move that, move that stuff around. But, um, I, I did not go to a doctor. Um, I did not test. Um, I just pretty much assumed we had COVID cause we had symptoms that people who tested positive around us had had. So I said, okay, you know, we were sick for like 12 days. So I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, we're having the same systems, symptoms as those who actually tested, but I didn't feel the need to test. I didn't feel the need to go to a doctor. I just, you know, took some vitamin C and tried to eat and sleep and taken a lot of fluids and we did good. We're here. Thank God. And you know, to, you had to uh, take off of, you were working then. You had to take yes, off. I had to, yeah, I had to take off sick. So I just used my own sick time. I just used my own sick time because I barely ever call out sick. I'm not really sick too often. So I just used my own sick time and called out and until I was like feeling better and ready to go back to work, you know, because also too, you know, you get that like fatigue after you're sick, you know, you just have that sort of like little bit of fatigue that, that lags, you know, and then going back to work and doing 12 hour tours on the overnights after you just got sick, you know, so I took a few days just to kind of regroup and get myself back together so I could do my job. You know, I don't, nobody wants someone who can't do the job, come to work, you know? So, but they didn't require you to test your, your job when you, when you were sick, they didn't require you to submit a positive test. At that time, no, at that time, no, no. I'm trying to remember exactly when they started the testing when they started testing us, well, they, they first started testing the unvaccinated, uh, which I'm not vaccinated. Um, so they started testing us every week. 
So when when okay. were you, when did you have it? When did you have COVID? I think it was right before. Right, no, or was it during? No, it was during. We were testing then because I remember. Yes, we were testing because I tested there and I was I came up negative. Um, but I wasn't having symptoms yet. But then the following, I remember I tested on a Friday or something. And then by Monday I was, I was sick, but yeah. Yeah. So they, we were only testing the unvaccinated at the time every week. So that was, I, I was sick. I never came up the tested positive there. I went back to work. I wasn't testing positive again. Um, yeah. And then, so at that point, yes, it was only us. It was only the unvaccinated. There weren't many of us. Um, but then, you know, this, especially this past December, we, the unvaccinated were still being tested only. And in December, right. So everyone was getting sick. Everyone was getting COVID. Those who were vaccinated were getting COVID. Um, I was able to work and pick up and had to work for people who were out sick, some of my vaccinated peers. So I, I remember questioning one of my superiors and I said, are we going to test um, those who are vaccinated as well? Because I've, I mean, it seems pretty clear that it's not just the unvaccinated who are getting COVID, you know, um, the vaccinated are getting it as well and then spreading it. So you know, he agreed. <laughs> he said, I agree with you, but you know, that was nothing much to do then. And I worked. And at this point, at this point, I was already at this point, they had already mandated the vaccine. And I was, um, I was awaiting my, uh, religious exemption, a decision. So I worked, you know, I, I, I still continued working every single day, you know, throughout December, January, when there was the COVID spike again, I worked every single day. Um, I didn't get sick. And, uh, then my religious exemption was denied. Um, in December, I was still able to work. Then in February, I got the final decision that my exemption was denied. And then I was placed on leave without pay in February. I'm going to say like February 20th. And then I was terminated on March 15th. So I've been terminated since March. And it's funny because, you know, I, I applied for unemployment, but was denied. Um, the fire department had stated that I was terminated due to misconduct was what they um, wrote down. And I guess at that point, they may have second guessed themselves and then rewrote the decision that I quit without good cause was one. So I said, okay, I've been working full time for 17 years and I just, and now there's just blatant lies that now it's, I'm been terminated due to misconduct or I quit without good cause. Meanwhile, I've never submitted any uh, resignation paperwork. So, so it's just kind of crazy. So, so this is your official, um, in, in the paperwork or whatever, whatever documentation yeah. was related to your termination, it yeah. says that you quit. Yes. It says the first one says that I was terminated due to misconduct as if I m misconduct, which was that I think really was like a blow to me. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, like I really pride myself on my work ethic. So to say that I've been terminated due to misconduct, like 
<laughs> that has never happened. I've never even had a complaint in my 17 years of, from any of my supervisors. Um, and then that they changed a, it. That was in a letter that you received? Is that? Um, that was what they actually, so the, I guess when I applied for unemployment, the uh, New York City unemployment denied my unemployment um, because the fire department had had told them, and this was in the unemployment paperwork, that I was terminated due to misconduct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then a week later, I got I got another letter from unemployment that said that the fire department told them that I quit without good cause. So that was the reason for them denying um, unemployment benefits to me. So yeah, I said, okay, I don't know how that came up or where that came up from, but I guess now we're just like blatantly lying. I guess, I guess here we are now just blatantly lying about stuff. Yeah. It's just craziness. So, you know, I I guess it just comes to a point where in life you really just have to sit and question yourself and say, wow, this is really happening. You know, this is really happening. I certainly never thought that my career, you know, would end like this. You know, I had every intention to, doing my 25 years and retiring then and moving on to something else. But in no way, shape or form did I ever think that I would not be allowed to work because I didn't want to take the COVID-19 vaccination. It's just wild. (laughs) That I think is the hardest pill to swallow some days. It's like, wow, you know, and then, and then to be like retaliated against, against it, like not being, or, you know, not being allowed to get benefits or, you know, then being, you know, you know, your reputation being tarnished for a religious exemption. It's, it's crazy. It's really just bizarre. You, um, tell me about the benefits that you lost and when you lost them. So on February 20th, when I was placed on leave without pay, um, I called up my union and I said, well, do I still have health benefits? Because there really was not much information, not much information at all was being disseminated. So um, I spoke with my union and they said, yeah, you have it for um, 30 days until um, 30 days. And then after 30 days, when you're off payroll, um, you're, you no longer have benefits. So I said, okay. I said, cause I have, a, I actually had an eye doctor appointment to go to. So I said, okay, all right, that's cool. So at least I know I don't have to do anything for that. And then literally like two weeks later when I was terminated, it was like, you know, I had a call again and I said, you know, I guess this is in there like, oh yeah, no, your, your health insurance benefits and all your benefits like end like at 0900 hours on March 15th, when you're officially terminated, like that's when everything, that's when everything ends. But, you know, there really wasn't much time, but this whole, the whole process wasn't much time. When the mandate came down, we had a, a week, we had one week's notice, you know, um, to get our, our paperwork together, if we had an exemption to get the vaccine, if people chose that route, you know, people were just, how it was done was done very, um, very thoughtfully done um, to make people feel like they had no choice over their lives and to scare people once again. And fear has just been the consistent, <laughs> emotion being like just thrust upon people. Like if you constantly scare people, I guess you could kind of get them to do whatever you want them to do. 
And um, I put in my paperwork on time and some people didn't and they were placed on leave without pay right away. It was just very, it was just, you know, and some people like, oh, this is never going to happen to us. It's never going to happen. Look at all we've done. We had a parade last year. <laughs> like, you know, like it was a parade for us of what we did. They're not going to, they're not going to fire us. And there was just the sinking feeling that that was what was going to happen. And it was, it was a tough pill to swallow. It was, you know, I, just like everyone else, right. We all have bills to pay and a mortgage to pay and food to put on the table. And it's just, you know, it was just very scary. It was, a, it was, it was just like another scary thing. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's like, just feels like there's one thing after another, you know, I thought that I was doing the right thing. I thought that I, I usually always, I always, always, always try to do the right thing. You know, like you, cause then I can't put my head on a pillow at night if I don't do the right thing. You know, I just, I can't, I can't, I, my conscious won't allow me to. So I hold myself to a very high standard. So when I do my best, I, I think that, you know, I certainly don't deserve to be fired, but I guess they thought otherwise, you know, simply based on uh, a vaccination that, as we've seen, especially this past winter, people are vaccinated or spreading it and contracting COVID j just the same. So I'm not really sure what the difference is, but we're still trying to figure that out. And then, of course, not to get unemployment. So, all right. You know, thankfully, some people at work put together a GoFundMe and that helped so much, you know, that really, really helped so much. I was so grateful for them to do that for me. Um, so that's helped me, you know, and my husband and put it, keeping our house afloat for the last um, few months. But yeah, it's just, you know, you have, it just makes me step back and say, oh my gosh, like where are all the laws that are supposed to protect people from things like this? Like there was, there's a ton of EEO laws in place for this stuff and nothing is, I guess it's all out. It just got thrown all out the window. I guess nobody, it's okay to be discriminated against. It's okay to be retaliated against. It's that's, it, it's okay for that. Now it's okay. If you're unvaccinated <laughs> to be treated like that, which is just an absolute horrible shame. Just no, nobody, no human being should be treated like that period. Never mind. Like you should not be detailing who gets to be treated like that and who doesn't, you know, that's just, craziness. I never thought in my life I would, I would actually see something like this go down, you know, citywide, statewide, nationwide, globally. I never thought that I would ever see something like this resurface again, you know, like this level of discrimination resurface again. What do you mean by resurface again? What's the I guess just from like our history, you know, and just with uh, slavery and racism and that level of discrimination or religious discrimination or just discrimination on based on gender. Like, you know, we all try to really say, you know, we're all humans here. Everyone is just living their life and wants to be happy and live a happy life. I think every person on this planet can say that that's all really, it's like, it's just what we want. That's just what people want to be happy and to live a happy, joyous life. And I don't think that should be robbed of for anyone. And just, and not that long ago, right? I mean, the 1960s civil rights movements, like that was not that long ago. 
You know, I remember when I was working in the city before I became EMS, like one of the guys in my building, he grew up in the South and his parents were slaves. It's like this, this is so real still. And yet here we are just perpetrating the same type of hatred towards just another group of people. And I just feel like, have we not learned anything? Have we not, have we not really learned anything from our past and what was done to people? It's really disheartening. Um, so I want to ask you about the comparison that you're making, but, but first, just to, just to um, finish asking you things about the benefits that you lost, I want to ask you about your pension. Um, you must've been paying into that, expecting it. What, what happened with that? Do you still yeah. receive something or? So, so technically, so I, I would still receive something for now, I think. Um, so t- at 25 years, once you retire, you get 50% pension. So now that I, I made just about 17 years, well, no, I just about made 17 years. Yeah. So I would probably get like 30 something like that of um, pension that won't kick in until my 25th year date. So I still have those few more years to go to make what would have been my 25th year before I can start collecting that. So you expect that you will receive something, but it's a reduced. Yes, it it is a reduced amount. Um, I expect to receive something because that's what is, you know, that's what I am supposed to be receiving. But to be honest, Amy, I, I don't even know what they might just say, oh, you're unvaccinated. You're not, you're not going to get your pension. I, I don't know. You no, haven't, I, they haven't sent you any letters about that or no, they haven't. I just, I have to like a part of me almost has to separate myself from that because I'm like, I, the lawlessness and the lying and the cheating that is going on is so just so rampant that at this point, I feel like they could probably say that and get away with it. And I have, there's, there's nothing I could do about it, you know, which is just, terrible. And I know I'm not the only one in this position, that's for sure. There are many of us. So let me, let me ask you about the, the comparison that you were making to, you know, past, um, discrimination. I think a lot of people would say those, the, the kind of discrimination that you're talking about had to do with, um, characteristics of people that they can't change, right? Mm -hmm. Racial discrimination, this kind of thing. It's something that you have no control over, you know, what your race is or, you know, what your sex is or whatever. Um, And so when society discriminates against you for those, you know, immutable characteristics, that's, that's really wrong. But people who are unvaccinated have a choice, right? You could get the vaccine at any time. And so you're not, consigned to this category of people that's, um, you know, being attacked or discriminated against. Um, It's, it's by your own choice. What, what do you think about that argument? Well, I think that argument just lends us to say, so then, then what they're saying is that discrimination is okay. So 
when we start to determine that discrimination discrimination is all right if it's this, but it's not all right if it's this, then what you're still saying is that that discrimination is being allowed, period. And I think any discrimination, and of course, based on characteristics that you have no control over, of course, is one thing. You know, well, not that it's one, it's you can't help, right? It's who you are as a person. But when you start talking about like, basing certain decisions on your religious beliefs or your spirituality or your soul, your conscience, your guidance, um, the universe, you know, nature. When you start looking into that, like, is that even a choice? Like if something's so much a part of you, but it can't necessarily be seen, does that mean that it's a choice or does that, or does it mean that it's inherently a part of you but it's just something that people can't see. Like that it's something that you can't change. It's something that you don't have a choice over because it is an integral part of your being that there is ultimately no decision because that is the, that is it. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that kind of makes sense, but I just think when you start saying that discrimination is okay because of this, you're just really just opening up the door that, so what you're saying is that discrimination is appropriate and discrimination on any, in any form and in any way is inappropriate and should not be. So regardless of if we could see the person's differences or not, I don't think that makes a justification to an argument like that in my, in my opinion. You know, because in either way, you're just you still kind of end up arguing that some someone is allowed to be discriminated against. And I just think that that's should just discrimination should never be. There should never be a reason for that, period. Whatever that is, whether you see it or not, because there are some people who are disabled, but we can't see that disability. Right. But it is a part of them. And it is a part of them that they can't change. And, and we have to respect that. So I guess what I'm saying is if someone has, you know, this spiritual guidance inside of them that they can't change, that is an inherent part of them. Who's to say that, that, that allows them a choice. Cause when you feel so connected to something and so strongly, there's no choice. Like I don't have a job because my choice was that I don't have a choice. (laughs) You know, if you're, I'm going to always go back to what is in my heart and in my soul. Like I'm always going to go back to that. And because of that, that leaves me unable to make any other choice except for that one. And I wonder if people see that and understand it on that level, if maybe that would change, but you know, just even the argument that some person is allowed to be discriminated against while another is not, it's just that whole argument is just, so what you're telling me is that discrimination is okay. And that's not okay. And there should be no argument to determine where discrimination is allowed and where it's not. So tell me more about why you made that decision. Um, why did you decide not to take the vaccine? You know, it just, it just didn't feel 
right to me. It just didn't align with my beliefs. It didn't align with my, my gut, my feeling, my spiritual connection with God. Like it just did not, it just did not align. And, you know, I'm, I'm an older woman and I've been through, you know, my twenties and my thirties, and I've had situations in life that didn't feel right. And this situation brought me back to times in my past where it didn't feel right. Um, something didn't feel right. Something felt off. And I just was not going to ignore that part of myself. I just wasn't, I just couldn't ignore that part of myself. Like I said, I, I like to go to sleep at night peacefully. And I know that if I was to ignore that feeling, then I was going to live in regret. And I do not want to live like that. That is not a life that I want to live. And I can't even, you know, pinpoint exactly like what it is, but it's, it is a physical sensation. It is something that I feel so deeply in my heart and soul that I cannot ignore it. And I have to trust in myself and trust in my soul in order to follow what is right for me. And I understand if people don't really get it. Um, but that is, that is my truth. That is my truth. And it's okay if people don't understand it, people don't need to understand it. You know, the only person that needs to understand it is me truly. You submitted a religious exemption. Yes. Uh, application. I don't know. Is it, yes. it's called an application. Yeah. I guess for the fire department, it was uh, an application. Yes. A religious exemption. So, um, mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about that? So, so besides filling out an application, you could also write a little bit of something, um, about yourself, like, and speak for yourself. Um, which is, you know, it's a very personal thing to talk about because, there are people that don't really understand it or there are people who kind of like make fun of it and stuff. So, um, putting that on paper was a little, you know, it's kind of, you're really exposing like a very vulnerable part of yourself. So that was, um, I want, you know, I, I wrote something, but I wanted it to be, um, heartfelt and real, but I was, I was like, I just was kind of, I just was kind of nervous that it was going to be like laughed at, right? Like anybody who puts their self out there, you know, kind of you leave yourself up to this, you know, vulnerability, which is, which I like, I like to keep things sort of private, you know? So I, I wrote it because I felt like I should write it and I felt like I had to write it. So I wrote a little something aside from filling out like the, the typical, um, application. Um, and I guess it didn't really, it didn't really mean much. Um, 
uh, because it didn't matter. I was denied anyway, as well as many other people who were who were denied. Um, as of yet, there haven't hasn't been anyone from the fire department that has had their religious exemption approved. So um, there are still people working on the street, though, who are unvaccinated, who are testing weekly. Um, and then there are some of us who were out of leave without pay and some of us who were terminated. So there's a lot of discrepancy in the whole process to begin with. But but yeah, so we had to fill out a form. We had to, you know, we didn't have to write a little something. I wrote a little something. And it just didn't matter. You know, I think the fire department just said to put this in just so that they could seem like they went through a sort of process, but they were denying everybody anyway. So um, what you submitted had to do with kind of your personal convictions, your personal spiritual convictions. You're not part of um, an organized church that submitted or, or organized religious organization um, that was submitting documents for you or it was more of a personal statement. Is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah. It was more of a personal statement. Yeah, exactly. Cause most people didn't have like, you know, religious organizations writing on their behalf. You know, most people didn't have that. A lot of people, also a lot of organizations didn't feel comfortable to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, what was going on was like, oh, well, the Pope says this and this person says that and the other person says this. And it's like, well, whatever these leaders say is one thing, but how an individual interprets and lives their life is something completely different, right? Like, even though it might, you might fall under the umbrella of, let's say, Catholicism or Judaism or Islam or, you know, Buddhism or Taoism or whatever, paganism, like whichever umbrella you would like to fall under, you know, everyone is individual in their practice, you know, like, just like fingerprints, right? Like everybody's individual in their way, which you like to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and kind of get like a holistic spiritual approach. So, and then some, some, some religious leaders were just scared to write, to write letters for people. Some weren't, but some were hmm. and didn't. So it was just, you know, it was just, and, and also too, Amy, remember like they gave people seven days to do this. Right. Otherwise they were going to be placed on leave without pay. So there wasn't even, you know, and that was done very, you know, very accurately and purposefully um, to leave people scrambling and scared and worried. And, you know, when you're in any relationship, whether it be an intimate relationship, a work employee relationship, whatever relationship you're in, when, when someone else, when, when whichever entity treats the other person like that, that just is not a respectful way to treat the other side of the relationship, right? Like, I don't think in any, whether it be, if it was an intimate relationship, this would, this would be an abusive relationship. If we were to like cut away all the fat and get down to like the actual, how things are going like this, this would be deemed an abusive relationship. If you would say this is, you know, a, you know, a partnership, a married partner, couple, you would say, okay, this is, this sounds abusive because no, 
no one should be given ultimatums. No one should be coerced to do something. No one should be told that if they don't do something, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to like, they're going to lose something, right? I'm going to kick you out of this house if you don't do this, or I don't want you going here. Otherwise this, you know, that's, these are all qualities of abusive relationships. And I, that was like a red, red flag for me. I'm like, I don't like the way this is feeling. If this was, if this was an employer saying, okay, Krista, this is what's going on. And we're going to give you a few months or a month or so, but this is what's going on. This is the projection that we're going in. You know, that's a different conversation when you're seated at the table with the conversation. That's a totally different vibe than when you are being given ultimatums and having your livelihood dangled over your head. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a pretty big one. That's a pretty big one, especially, you know, when you've been doing this job for 17 years, you're like with the same company. You know, it's like uh, now you're you're going like this. If you don't do this, then that. And I just never appreciate that type of I don't I don't like that type of energy exchange. <laughs> it does not work for me at all because I don't do that to other people and I don't want that to be done to me. Um so let's talk about the public health argument a little bit because some people would say okay, but there are you know, requirements for employment, right? If you don't show up, they'll fire you or like, you got to do your job. You got to do what's required. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who feel that, you know, medical professionals especially should be vaccinated because they come in contact with the most vulnerable people. Right. And Mm -hmm. that, um, if you, if you work in a hospital or, or with, you know, in in any capacity as a medical professional, you have to do everything that you can to reduce your risk of making people sick, right? (laughs) Or whatever it is. And so that's why I've talked to many people who um, are opposed to a kind of general mandate, right? Um, But think that medical professionals should definitely take the vaccine. What what do you think Mm -hmm. about that? Well, I guess we could just go back to this past December and January where January, where those who were vaccinated were getting sick and spreading COVID. So I don't think this vaccine is the end all be all. I don't think it's just you take this vaccine and you will never, ever get someone sick ever again in your whole life. That's just impossible, right? And as healthcare worker, and as a healthcare worker, um, of course we don't want to get people sick, right? We don't even want to get our family sick. We don't want to get anyone sick. Who wants to be sick generally? Nobody wants to be sick. Um, But I don't think, you know, you're talking about like as if it's somebody's fault, number one. It's nobody's fault who, who have gotten sick, who gets sick. This is not somebody to be chastised, like, how dare you have a cold? You know, if you have a cold and you spread a cold, are you now this evil, horrible person? No. If you have COVID and you spread COVID, is it because you did it because you were malicious and wanted to hurt everybody? No, absolutely not. Um, so I think that whole, I think there's this idea where these like unvaccinated people are these evil, 
killers that are just going around and like breathing fire on everyone and destroying everything in their path. Like that's so not the case. And to try to, to try to even assume that we as humans can control any portion of nature to the point where every healthcare worker could now never, ever, ever spread any type of illness to another person is foolish. It is foolish. Um, it is just, I think it's, I don't know where the thought process is to that because we cannot control nature. We cannot, we cannot control ourselves to a certain degree and how we're with other people. Unless you would like to live in a bubble and literally never make human contact again, I don't think there's any way to foolproof any human, especially in a healthcare field, getting a potentially getting another person sick or vice versa. That is not, that's not possible. And COVID is not the only thing. Severely immunocompromised people, people with severe chronic medical conditions can get sick, get severely ill from the common cold. So when, when you start looking like, oh, this is the only vaccine that we need to worry about, or this is the only virus we need to worry about, and this vaccine is going to cure everything. And once everyone takes it, this, will, this, vaccine, this virus will never, ever be around again. We have been shown that that is not the case. That is just, that's just not the case. It simply is not, this vaccine does not eradicate COVID. People who are vaccinated still get COVID. They contract it. They can give it to others. They can spread it. It's, it has not stopped anything. So to request, to mandate this for employment on the basis that you will now never get another person sick again, I mean, it's just, that is one of the most po probably foolish statements I've ever heard. <laughs> it is not possible. What about just, what about just harm reduction? Like you have to do everything you can to reduce the, you know, the possibility of harm. Harm reduction, I would consider harm reduction as washing your hands in between patients. I would consider harm reduction staying home if you don't feel well. Um, you know, approaching people how, how they would like to be approached. You know, and just, I think, I don't think harm reduction is just simply taking a shot that we have seen that it does not even work. I mean, if, if the vaccination worked, I would say you have a valid argument, but it doesn't even work. So to, to mandate something that we've seen doesn't work is just, it's silly. It is just absolutely silly. You know, I, I just find it, I just can't even think of something else that I could, that I could come across to say, I mean, it's been so obvious it boggles my mind that some people still feel this, um, still have this argument, I guess, but it comes also down to, you know, when you start mandating what people are to place in their bodies, it opens up a Pandora's box where your body now is not sovereign. It is now, it is now controlled by others and healthcare and, spreading disease can be 
one part of allowing someone to control your body, but what about if now that control of your body can turn into sterilization or um, euthanasia or anything else, or maybe you're not allowed to eat this because your body is at this level. You have this, let's say, uh, BMI and you're not allowed to eat this stuff. So you cannot, you go to the grocery store, you're not allowed to purchase this stuff. Like, it just seems like it's a very slippery slope. And I think there comes, it just comes to the point where nothing good has ever come of controlling other people's bodies, of controller, controlling other people's lives. It just, nothing ever good comes of it. Nothing at all. And I think we can look back in history, in world history, and, and then see that that has not done any good for anybody. Do you, do you see the, um, these vaccines as fundamentally different and the mandates that, you know, go along with them as fundamentally different from the childhood vaccines that kids have to take to go to school? Uh, or have you come to look at that differently? <laughs> you know, that practice of, of requiring, um, childhood vaccinations. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people, um, Look at these vaccines and say, well, we require childhood vaccines. Like, what's the big deal? How is this different? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a few differences, I think, especially from, well, vaccinations in general, right? So the, the vaccinations that I received in 1980 are, and the number of vaccines I received in 1980 as a child is very different from what children today receive, right? There's about Maybe there was about six, I think, six-ish or something. I don't know the numbers offhand, but there's about now 70 plus now. So over the last you know, course of, of 40 years or so, there's been just a, a massive increase um, in vaccinations. Um, so I don't, I question, you know, I question maybe the need for all of them. I question a why, why we have to have so many. And then I wonder if, you know, especially now, after what we've just been through the last two years, I wonder, it really makes me question about our, the health and well-being really at the crux of vaccinations, or is there another agenda? I don't know what the priority is. Um, so it has certainly led me to really question that, that in general. Um, also to there's been some vac vaccinations that have taken years, you know, years to um, formulate and test. And usually if you see adverse effects and things like that, it stopped right away and revamped. And this one came out real fast and there hasn't been any testing. And that's a concern, especially for children, I think, because we don't know what the future, what the next three, five, 10 years will hold, we are not going to know. And then once again, if you look back in history, you could see where some things were, some medications were rolled out too fast and had detrimental side effects and not even detrimental side effects for the person who took said medication or drug or vaccination, but generationally it showed um, effects 
it may have skipped a generation and then showed up or so I think, I think as a human, like population, I don't know if we are looking to try to control too much of our bodies or the environment and nature to the point where we almost are now harming ourselves. And, you know, I, I don't know if the sense of control that if we take all these vaccinations, if we do this, then we'll live forever and nothing bad will ever happen, you know, and that's not the case, you know, and especially being a 911 responder, an emergency responder for 17 years, you see things that make no sense at all. You know, you see things that where, where you would say, oh my gosh, there's no way this person is going to survive this. And they survive. And then you have another time where you're like, there's, there's no way. How, how's, how's this, how's this person dying? Right? Like this doesn't make any sense. Like this, how is this, this shouldn't be. And then you, you have babies who die and children. And, you know, I think the takeaway from, for all my experience is that nothing is guaranteed like nothing at all and there's a full sense of security right that like okay you do this in life and then you get to this point in life and then that and then when you're 80 or 90 then you die and you've lived a fulfilling life and but that's that happens for a lot of people sure but it doesn't happen for all and there's no there's no written law of how life is supposed to go or if you step out the door today Will you come back home? We we don't ultimately know, right? I think every day, just because we've been doing it for lots of days, you know, you kind of get like, oh yeah, whatever, right? You don't really, you don't really think about it. But wow, if we really saw life on that level, right? Like how amazing would each day be? You know, how differently would we treat each other if we thought that time and life is so precious and ultimately there are things outside of our control and there will always be things outside of our control, even in a nice air conditioned home with electricity and TV and you have food at the grocery store. That's, that can all be gone in an instant. And we would have to survive regardless. Like if everything disappeared, we would still go on. And I think lying and, and relying on trying to control everything as if we can control everything, right? Like as if we can even come to, I don't know, a quarter of a quarter of controlling this amazing universe. It just, it boggles my mind. And I think that real, that sense of control and needing to control in order to feel safe, like I'm never going to die. And, and the fear of death and the fear of not being uncomfortable is just, I think it has overshadowed humanity. And I think it's, it really has come to a head now that we could see how much it has overshadowed humanity to each other, to people, like how we treat each other. Like, is this what we're willing to give up our humanity for? Because tomorrow we might just walk out and 
God only knows what could happen. Anything could potentially happen where we don't return home. And is it worth it? Like, is it worth it, you know, to live, to live a life where it's like, well, I could potentially not get sick of this, but there's are, there are about a million other things that could have very severe effects just the same. So I think, you know, if we look at it like that, I think it creates a whole nother conversation around it. And maybe, maybe the real issue is not feeling safe within yourself, within oneself, you know, and trying to control everything around you. But we all know that that never works. You could try all you want, but it just never works. It always ends up backfiring for sure. So what's happening uh, next for you? What's happening with you now? <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm a, I've applied to another paramedic job out in New Jersey. Um, I'm kind of going through the process now. So we'll see what happens. You know, I think it could just, it's been a very, a, a big dose of, reality, I guess, to see that, you know, even though my experience and my resume really is just totally meaningless because most people just only want that one thing, you know? Um, so I'm kind of at a point in my life right now where I'm like, whatever will be, will be. And if I'm meant to continue being a paramedic, then I'm sure that will work out. And if I'm meant to take on another path sooner than later, I, I, I'm, I'm in school now to be a home birth midwife. This has been something that I've been doing for the last few years, working and going to school, because I was hoping by the time I retire to be done with school and my apprenticeship, and then I could kind of transition into being a, a home birth midwife, which is one of my other dreams. And so I said, okay, if this, then maybe we'll just have to jump into it sooner than later, you know, like, so I'm kind of, I'm trying my best to be very open and allow whatever is meant to come into my life right now to come in and not really hold on to the safety of a job and a regular paycheck. And I think that's something that this has taught me the most is it has certainly shed a lot of my beliefs of control and safety that I thought I had before. So I'm just trying to be as open-minded as possible. And if I have to, you know, if we, if we have to sell our home and leave, then I guess that's what we're going to have to do. So we're kind of on that level. You know, my husband is coming along for the ride, but it wasn't an easy go that way either. You know, it was, it was tough trying to get him on board too. And but we made it, we made it through. It was a tough go. You know, this whole, it's been a very tumultuous last few years. Let's just say that really trying for sure. So he still has an income. He hasn't been affected by a mandate. Yes. So he still has an income because he works for a small company. So in, I'm grateful for that. Right. In uh, New York, I, we, I, we have to explain no, in, Jersey. in Jersey, right. And New yeah. Jersey, I, I want to explain a little bit the legal differences because New York, New York City has a vaccine mandate for just about all workers, really, but they've only enforced the uh, municipal worker mandate mm -hmm. so against uh, people like you. Um, yes. 
but in New Jersey, I'm not sure. I, I actually don't know what exactly is in place there. They, there are no uh, vaccine mandates for ge just general employment or. So currently, I don't from what I know, since I've never really worked in New Jersey before. So this is like my first kind of time going going into it and learning about mm -hmm. it. But from what I know, I know like the hospitals, there is a mandate, but they are open to exemptions. So they are accepting, whereas New York City is not accepting any, at least the fire department is not accepting not one. But there are other places who are who are respecting people and their views and saying, okay, if this is your view, then we accept that and acknowledge that. And if we ask you to wear a mask or test weekly or whatever it may be to reduce like harm reduction or whatever, if, if you could stay home when you're sick or what have you, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like going in the process now. So I have yet to reach that level yet of discussion, but so I can't really speak truly on it, but I could always let you know, Amy, how it goes. I, I will uh, check back with you. Definitely. Um, um, without prying, I want to ask you, you're talking about maybe having to move. Um, how, how is this, you have just one income now, how is this affecting your financial situation? Whatever you want to say about that. Yeah, well, it's certainly affecting my financial situation. You know, um, my salary was, was actually the one that, um, that the household depended on the most. So, um, losing that is a huge hit. So um, right now we're afloat, um, thanks to some of my coworkers who put together a GoFundMe. So we're doing okay, um, but I'm not sure how much longer um, I'm gonna be able to you know, withstand that. So, you know, I'm not even sure where, to, where I would even go. <laughs> we haven't even reached that level yet. You know, we're just sort of like trying to take it one day at a time. And then if, if this next job as a paramedic falls through, then we're going to have to sit down more and really, really come up with um, a solid plan of how to approach the next few months. Cause I'm kind of at this point, I'm looking at it in like two months, two months ahead is as far as I could go right now. Um, I'm hoping, who you knows, something might change. I, <laughs> I don't know. There's a part of me that, you know, a part of me is, is scared of it too. And then there's a part of me that has full trust and faith that everything is just going to work out exactly how it needs to. But, you know, each day is different. Some days are easier than others, maybe, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's one day I want to ask you about that you mentioned before. The parade. Yeah. Were you in the parade? No, I didn't go. Because <laughs> okay. you know what? There's something about it too. I felt like we were being put on display. And I didn't appreciate that either with all the hero signs. I was just like, it just felt eerie to me. And I said, what's going to happen next year. And uh -huh. okay. <laughs> my intuition, I, I listened to it because, um, even sometimes when I wish I didn't, <laughs> sometimes I wish, you know, when you wish sometimes that you didn't, <laughs> that you could just put the blinders on and keep it moving. I can't, I just can't. And my intuition has never failed me, never, ever. So to ignore it is just, and when I would see all these signs up in the parade, I said, 
to myself. And I said to some of my, even my partner, and she was like, you're crazy. You know, like, Kristen, why are you always, you're always so crazy. So I'm just like, oh, what are they going to do to us next year? And here we are. It was almost like an omen, you know? Wow. Um, so why, like, why, why do you think, um, there was the, 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 we're talking about just so people understand who may, who may not know the parade that we're talking about is the one that Bill de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio threw for essential workers, people like you yes. who worked through the pandemic, through the worst days of the pandemic. Um, and um, there was such an outpouring of appreciation and love for people who did that, especially medical workers. Um, there hasn't been, I don't, I, I don't know to what extent you've been part of the protest movement about mandates, but it, it's, I think it's fair to say it hasn't been a huge movement. It's been relatively <laughs> small. Um, there's been very little discussion, public discussion about it. Do you think that's true? Yes. I feel like we're still sort of, I don't want to say like we're underground underground, but we're, we're, the, we're there, but it's almost as if we're being, you know, consciously ignored, you know, uh, nobody will sit at the table with us. Uh, nobody will talk to us. So it's hard to really even have a conversation, you know, when, when, when people are refusing and shutting you down and shutting your voice down, how do you get, how do you get your point across? How do you, how do you show it? So I, I've been part of the movement. I've been um, with Bravest for Choice and working with, uh, with them mostly. And we've been doing our best and we, we, start, we have a lawsuit going, uh, the New Yorkers for Religious Liberty lawsuit um, with some great lawyers who, really are truly passionate about this work that they're doing that really, really great people are um, named in that suit. Yes, I am actually, I am. I'm the, I'm one of the named plaintiffs in that suit. And, you know, we've been just, and it's for, it's for all New Yorkers. It's a class action. So it's not just for EMS. It's not just for the fire department. It's for everyone from students to teachers, to office workers, to janitors, to electricians, to plumbers. I mean, everybody is involved. And it's really just to bring light that this fight is, it's all inclusive. It's not just for, for one, it's not just for us municipal workers. It's, it's for all of us. It's for all the blue collar, white collar workers who are, who are finding themselves in this position. Um, so, yeah, so that's our way of, I guess, like, that's our biggest way, I guess, of getting our voice out there amongst, like, doing podcasts and, and, and interviews and going to some of the protests and making ourselves known. But we're always here. And we even, as Bravest for Choice, we try to, we we're getting money to, like, help people who are terminated or who are on leave without pay to help them pay bills or, you know, keep them afloat if they need something. So we really try to be supportive of our members and, and people in general, like this fight isn't just about us either. It's about all of us. It's about humans. It's about humanity in general. So we try to really like keep pushing that forward. Why do you think um, it doesn't have a higher profile though in public discourse? <laughs> I think, you know, well, I think what we've noticed, especially over the last few years is that 
um, alternative views have been sort of shut down and demonized. And I think that if we were to give in more public light, people will see that we are just people too. You know, we're not these these evil people who want to hurt others and don't care about others or want to see people die. Like this is not who we are, you know, like we are just, we're people who want to just live life and live a joyous, happy life with our family and friends and loved ones. And we really just, we really just want to keep that going, you know? And I think if, I think if we, if this was brought into a public light, people will see that, oh my gosh, these are just, these are just regular people. You know, they're not these like crazy fanatic types that, no, we're just, we're regular people who, who have like dedicated our lives to helping others because that is like just who we are, you know, like it's just who you are. So you have it, you can't get rid of it. It's just who you are. And we just see something that isn't right. And we're speaking up against it. And I think, I think it's just, it's scary to be brought in the public for the people who want to keep us quiet. So they're trying, they're trying their best to keep us, to keep us quiet, but the truth will always come out and the light will always shine. So it may not be right away, but it'll happen. I'm confident in that. (laughs) I know we'll be celebrating soon enough. (laughs) Do you, um, do you have any sort of practical thoughts about that? Like how, uh, how in terms of the political world or the media world that will come about, has this changed your view of the political or media landscape? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I didn't think I could just dis- have it such a distaste for politics <laughs> any, any more than I did in the past, but yeah, this really just, just gave me a complete just distaste for all, like politics in general, like, I was never a fan, never. Um, but when it comes, it's just been such a, just a blatant show of just, I just, I'm all about the people and what's right for the people and to do what's right for the people. So that will always be in my mind and should always be a top priority, but it's unfortunately not that way for others. And it's a real shame. It's a real shame. And I just try, you know, there's not much I can do on a national level, but, you know, on a personal level, I just try to be that person to my family, my friends, my neighbors, strangers in the store, you know, just people who I meet on the street. Like, I just try to just show that level of caring, even if it's just a basic level, like, you know. I don't know, getting somebody shopping car for them. Oh, you know, like, I don't know, just little things like that, just to show that, you know, community is where community is where it's at. And we inevitably do need each other. And when you can rely on somebody for just even a little thing, like what that does to someone, you know, it's, we need each other and, and people are beautiful. They really are. They are. I feel like we're inherently beautiful and unfortunately things get muddled and, you know, over the years and things like that, or, or ideas get in the way or beliefs get in the way and things happen where it muddles the purity of the soul. But I I really think that 
that ultimately there are a lot of good people out here. There are a ton of good people out here. And, and I know that, I know that it, it could be shown and I have faith that I have faith that, that the goodness will eventually like really come out on top. Finally, <laughs> maybe this is just what we needed to Amy. I, I don't know. You know, this, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I think to myself, am I, am I just thinking these thoughts are, you know, I don't, are they just floating? Do other people think like this too? I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a bunch of us, but I just feel like eventually I think, eventually I think things will turn around and people will see like, there are some people out there who are just not good people and they don't really care about the common everyday person, you know, but then there are people out there who really do. And just don't forget that, you know, like this world is not, it's not a completely jaded, horrible world. There are really, really good people out there. And you could see that every single day if you allow it.